Let's find our sermon outline. Let's open our Bibles to the book of John, please. John chapter 4. You'll find where we're starting today on page 1652 in that book rack Bible. Everybody's Bible open. Find your way there to John chapter 4. If you picked up an outline on your way in, pull it out. If you have your Three Crosses app open, you can just select uh, today's message and you can have an outline there. We're finishing our little mini-series called Transformation Journey. came out of a four-day solo backpack trip that I took that I thought really was just about me, what God wanted to do in my heart, uh, but I was encouraged to share it with the congregation, and so that's what I've done the last few weeks. And, uh, when I was, and what I did while I was on those four days is I read through the Gospels, and, and it just struck me so powerfully the amazing power and love of Jesus Christ. And the, the big takeaways out of those four days for me were to see the radical discipleship of Jesus. Not easy to follow Jesus. He didn't put the bar low. He put it high. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to give up your life. That was a big takeaway, just a great reminder. Secondly, the amazing love of Jesus everywhere, every page, every contact, every, every interaction with Jesus, amazing love. And I felt that love even on that trip and every day to some degree, but some of us struggle with feeling the love of Christ. We know we're loved, but the difference is when we feel we're loved. And, and I talked to someone out of this series that said, you know, this is one of the biggest struggles in my Christian life. I, I trust what God's Word says. I know that God loves me, but I don't often feel loved. In fact, this person told me they had never necessarily felt the love of Christ. In their hearts. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if that has to do with background in a person's life or whatever, but we're just, as you immerse yourself in the Gospels, you place yourself in a in a setting where the Lord Jesus can just do a special work in your life. I saw the radical discipleship of Jesus, the amazing love of Jesus. I, I saw the miraculous power of Jesus on every page, every chapter, every interaction, how Jesus' power changes things, changes lives, changes circumstances, miracles take place, amazing things go on. And by the way, do you know that, uh, that last week, it's, oh, I, I blew this, because second service, I said it would be a miracle if the 49ers won. I said that last week. <laughs> I didn't say it in this service, so sorry. I just, I had to bring that up. Anyway, um, the miraculous power of Jesus. And then lastly, I saw the missional focus of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today. The missional focus of Jesus. And we find this missional focus out of a situation that happened in Jesus' life here in John chapter 4. And it has to do with food. And I thought it was interesting that this is a week where food is on our minds, right? Um, I mean, yesterday up here, think about the gym was full of people, 150 families here wanting food for this Thanksgiving, 150 families. There was probably 400 people up here waiting for food. I, I've teased sometimes that I think I have a tapeworm growing in my body because I eat constantly. I just, I, eating is very special to me. I, I, I love food and some of my best memories are with people that I love eating food. Eating food is just a special thing. I get up, I have breakfast and I can't wait for lunch. And then I eat lunch, I can't wait for dinner. You know, it's, it's one of those things. Food is, is important to me. Food is about my appetite. It's about my interests. It's about a, a taste and joy and pleasure and all of those things. And in John chapter 4, we find this interesting situation where the disciples are with Jesus. They're going through a town 
called Samaria, an area called Samaria. They come to this little village of Samaria, Sychar, and there's a well there. It's Jacob's well. And Jesus, it says in the text in John chapter 4, the very top, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, he he had to go because there was this woman there. Now, the disciples would not have chosen this this route. They would have gone around Samaria because Jews didn't interact with Samaritans. This was a very racial divide in first century uh, Judaism. And Jesus, because he wanted to have an encounter with this woman, he goes through Samaria and he's sitting at this well and this woman is there. The disciples, meanwhile, have gone into, uh, into town to get a falafel, something to eat. They're hungry. <laughs> and they come back and they've got their little food and they you know, got their to-go bag, and they, they asked Jesus if, they want, if he wants something to eat. And if you just look, what Jesus says in verse 32 is like code language for his missional focus. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples assume that perhaps someone else brought him food to eat. And then Jesus tips his hand to what his life and ministry is all about. And he says in verse 34, look at it. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Now this strikes me because when I think about food, I think of, like I said, it's my appetite, it's my joy, it's my pleasure, it's, it's taste, it's something often on my mind. Eating is something often on my mind. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. For Jesus, his appetite, his pleasure, the thing that he thought about the most was not food, it was about a different kind of food. It was about pleasing his father. This is amazing to me. In fact, if you're there in your Bibles, just go over to chapter 5, verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19, where Jesus says, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And then chapter 6, go over to chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says there, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. What was on the mind of Jesus? What was on the mind of Jesus, like my appetite, like your appetite, thinking about food, thinking about the pleasure of food, thinking about nourishment, thinking about satisfaction, what was on Jesus' mind always was doing the will of the Father. This was his food. This is what he lived for. This is what he thought about. This is what he dreamt about. This is what was always on his mind. And so I saw that as I read through the Gospels, and then it struck me that when it comes to following Jesus, this needs to be on our minds too. You remember in this one setting in the Gospels, and it's located in different places, but in Matthew 12, we've got this little setting where Jesus is packed in a house, and someone comes and says, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside, and they want to see you. And Jesus turns to them, and he says, He says, who are my mother and brothers? And he asks this question. He says, says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does the will of my father. So Jesus is now pitching it back to us and he's saying, what's your appetite? What's your food? What is the thing you long for? As you get excited about eating a meal, are you as excited about doing the will of God in your life. So just as a point of introduction, I wanted to show you this overwhelming sense 
that Jesus always had on his mind to do the will of the Father. And then I asked myself the question as I was reading through the gospel, well, what really was the will of the Father? What was it that Jesus really came to do? And I, I, I cannot get away from his missional focus. And when I say that, I, I'm describing what I see in him fulfilling the will of the Father. And I'm going to break this down fairly simply. You know me. I, I'm a simple guy. As I, as I look through this and as I kind of look for some threads, here are the three things that I think resonate with the will of the Father for Jesus' life. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that, that this is also us. This is what we should be about in our walk with Christ. So if you're following, if you're taking notes, I want you to see there are three things Three things that capture the will of the Father for Jesus, and, and they all uh, come right out of the gospel text. And the first one is this, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This was the will of the Father, that Jesus would come and seek to seek and save the lost. And, and there's actually three aspects of this that I saw in the gospels, three aspects of this seeking and saving uh, the lost that I want to point out to you this morning. And the first one comes to us in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, just find your way over to Luke chapter 19. Because in Luke 19, we've got this the story of little Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was a short little guy. He was a tax collector. He's not loved uh, at all by the people. But Jesus noticed that Zacchaeus wanted to connect with Jesus. And, G- and Zacchaeus, the text tells us, he couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. So he climbs up in this sycamore tree and he's waiting for Jesus to come by. And suddenly, they, you know, they meet eyes. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come on down. And he brings him down and he says, today I, I'm going to spend time with you. I want to spend time with you in your house. And Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by this that he, he literally, before anything else happens, he says, I, I'm going to give everything I have to the poor. Uh, he says, half of what I have I give to the poor. And he says, if I've mistreated anybody, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, pay it back four times the amount. And, and Jesus says in verse 9, look at this. He says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So there's where the actual it comes right out of the text. This is what Jesus came to do. This is his mission. This is why he came, to seek and to save the lost. And he says it right here to Zacchaeus. And, and the reason I show you that is because this aspect of his missional focus comes through clearly here as a celebration. You can see Jesus sort of up on the end of his toes kind of. He's excited about this because this is why he came. He's sort of like applying. He's going... This is why I came. I'm, I'm excited about what I see happening here. For Jesus, this is an absolute win, showing exactly why he came. And I, and I love the imagery of this. He came to seek and save what was what? Lost. There's something about finding something that's lost that's just joyous. It's celebrative. Um, there's, there's a few things that I never want to lose, okay? When I'm talking about just my daily stuff, I'm always checking my pockets, and I'm just going to give you a little insight into who I am today. Uh, there's a, a few things. Number one, my chapstick, okay? I never want to lose my chapstick. I've got it right here. See, it's my chapstick, okay? And then it, there's my wallet, okay? And then there's my phone, and then there's my keys. Those are, those are the things that as I go out into my day, I'm always checking. You know how that is? You know, it's like... I got it all, you know. And that's, that's what I'm concerned about. And lately, it's weird. I don't know. I'm probably at that age or something where I'm just losing stuff, you know. And my, my wife just cracks up because I'm always losing my chapstick. I was like, have you seen my chapstick? It's like, Larry, just 
why do you care about chapstick? Anyway, I'm sorry I'm even talking about this, but the point is I, I lose stuff. And actually, one of my most cherished things, which I don't always have on me, is my prayer journal. And about a couple weeks ago, I thought I lost my prayer journal. And I've got so much stuff in there, detailed people's lives, things going on, and I was freaking out. I'm like, I've lost my prayer journal. This is going crazy. And actually, it was right up here on my desk. I thought I had it in my car. I went home, and I was searching. I ripped up my whole office at home. I just, I couldn't believe it wasn't there. And I drive up, and there it is in my office, you know. And, and in fact, I'm getting so bad at this. The other day, I thought I lost my phone. I'm looking everywhere. I'm going through my bag. I'm like, where's my phone? I'm looking, and it's in my hand. <laughs> this is bad when you've got those kinds of things going. But there's simple joys in life. Oh, my phone. I'm so excited. It's, it's, it's a miracle. It's right here, you know. There's a joy about finding something that's lost. If you're missing something and you're looking for it and you find it, it's beautiful. And I just, this is what Jesus was about. Every time someone got found, Jesus celebrated that. He celebrated it. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And in fact, you remember in Luke 15, talk about, I mean, just back a couple pages, you know, the, the lost sheep. And Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who do not need repentance. Or the lost coin, in the same way, Jesus says, there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. Or the lost son. You know, we must celebrate, Jesus said, uh, or, or in the story, the father says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost, but now he's found, and they began to celebrate. This celebration is a theme of lost things that are found. And if you're lost this morning, if you're away from Christ, if, if you've wandered or if you've never come home, if you've never experienced a relationship, then the angels in heaven are ready to rejoice when you come to Christ, when you give your life to Jesus. And the invitation is open. The door is wide open. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait. You don't have to go through hoops. This is the beautiful thing as you walk through the Gospels and see Jesus inviting people in. And the invitation goes out. So sometimes this aspect of his missional focus is celebrative. But sometimes, I noticed, it's also corrective. Sometimes I've noticed it's corrective. And what I mean by that, for example, is... And this is in every one of the Gospels, in Mark 2, Matthew 9, Luke 5. This story of this other tax collector named Levi, whose name was Matthew uh, also. And he pens the Gospel of Matthew. But he's a tax collector. And he's, and he's throwing a party for Jesus because he's been found. He's excited. He wants his friends to know who Jesus is too. And the people, the party goers that are there uh, are saying... Why, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're asking the disciples. And, and, of course, Jesus' response reveals again the focus of his mission. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners. Matthew 9.13. So th this aspect of his missional focus is not just celebrative. Sometimes it's corrective. He has to say to people, look... Th these are my folks. These are the people I've come for. 
And I, I was thinking about that when I was thinking about the church, I was thinking about our church, I was thinking about our ministry, and you know, uh, sometimes people like things to be really neat and tidy, but I remind us, this is a great moment to remind us, that when it comes to Jesus' missional focus, wherever Jesus is at work, wherever the gospel's at work, it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy. It's not always going to look right to us. It's not always going to feel right to us because there are people around us that are not yet there, right? And so here we are in a church. We've got a lot of people here this morning, but there's seats available. Praise God. We should be inviting people all the time. And if we're inviting people, hopefully we're inviting people who really need the gospel, right? And hopefully people find their way into this church either through Cafe Four or a generous, loving invitation from a friend or they're driving by and they see those crosses and God's working in their life and they say, I think I'll go try that place. And, they, and sometimes they phone us or they email us. Will I be welcome here? What will it be like if I come? People are scared to death to walk onto this campus because they're afraid they're going to be judged. They're afraid they're not going to be loved or accepted or cared for, just like we heard the testimony of Kathleen share this morning. And when they come in here and if they feel love and acceptance, then the message sort of like it becomes something that they can listen to and suddenly it makes sense to them that everyone that they're sitting amongst are just as much a sinner as they are and that the gospel is free just to them as well. But here's the problem. We come into churches, and we've been around a while, we've come to know Christ and, so, and we get a little self-righteous, sometimes we get a lot self-righteous and we start judging people and we say, oh, that person doesn't look like they fit in here and they're not wearing the right clothes or they don't smell right or they, they're kind of grossing me out or something like that. Or we judge them by some other kind of criteria that we put up in our minds and we say, I'm not sure if they belong. And this is the very scary thing about the modern church is that we become kind of a club for the righteous. And this is not what the church is. The church is... A, a body, a community of people who have come to found, find the beautiful forgiveness and grace that is found only in Jesus Christ and his love for us. And this is why we exist as a ministry. We exist because we want to be a signpost and we want to share the love of Christ to as many people as we can. But the ministry gets messy. I remember the church I grew up in across the bay, little Baptist church on the corner of 28th and Alameda, and the church was kind of an older congregation, not too many young people. They decided, let's hire a youth pastor. Let's get some kids into the church. So they hired the youth pastor, and this guy was so dynamic. He was great. The church, the whole church was about 300 adults, and there were little kids and so forth because there were some young families, but there were no kids. My youth group, when I came to that church, was about four people, okay? It was me and Two other guys, maybe, maybe five or six. I mean, seriously. And the teacher of the high school, Sunday school class, was a, a dear man. His name was Stan. He was 80 years old. He drove a little Triumph convertible, which I thought was cool. And so I'm going to listen to this guy. I thought he was pretty cool. <laughs> but there were no kids. And no, nothing really. Tr so... Miles comes, this youth pastor, and suddenly kids are coming, he's out on campuses, he's using these four or five kids to sort of like, hey, he's equipping us and get out, invite your friends. We start inviting kids and friends and pretty soon we've got a youth group the size of the entire church. I mean, seriously, there were 300 kids in this youth group. And, and now I'm hearing complaints because my parents would talk about this in our house. They were excited about all the kids, but they were telling about all the people that were their age saying, what are all these kids doing here? They're ruining the church. They're breaking the walls. They're making a mess. And you know, that can just transport into a lot of different scenarios 
in, in any and every church where people say, you know, we want to reach out. We want people to come in. We want sinners to be here. And the sinners show up and we go, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> and all the while we forget we're sinners too. So sometimes it's celebrative. Jesus goes, yeah, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And sometimes it's corrective. It's not the well that need the physician, but I've come to call the sinners. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, sin, and then, well, by the well, hmm, how are we doing? Well, you know, Jesus said, you know, in Matthew 10, he said, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's interesting, isn't it? For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus says it's not only messy in the church, it gets messy at home. Because when you start living for Jesus, people are not sure they want Jesus around. And I'm amazed when you read the miracles of Jesus. A lot of times people, you know, Jesus does this amazing miracle. And it's interesting. It says, and the people of the town came out and asked Jesus to leave. Why? Because it was just a little too invasive. It was disrupting the economy. It was disrupting their activities. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. For judgment I have come into the world, Luke 12, 49, Jesus said, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. In other words, you think you see, but you're actually blind. And that's what Jesus, you know, Jesus just turned the apple cart over all the time. So sometimes it's celebrative, sometimes it's, it's corrective, but it's also, if you're taking notes, this aspect of his missional focus sometimes comes through as constructive. Write that down, constructive. And what I mean by this, just write the word strategy there, because I, I see this all through the Gospels too. Like in Mark 1.38, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there. For this is why I came. Jesus didn't settle down anywhere. He didn't have a home. He was an itinerant preacher, an evangelist. And he was always saying, come on guys, let's move, let's move, let's move, let's move. In other places, there's an obvious benefit from the mission of Jesus, like in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. John 12.46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. There's a, there's a clear distinction that Jesus makes here that his mission is focused and it's, it's strategic. But somehow... We who are followers of Christ have somehow become disconnected to his mission and our own. And we kind of feel comfortable about, you know, letting the professionals do the mission of Jesus. It's, it's pastors and it's evangelists and it's missionaries that ought to do the, the work of Jesus. But that's, you don't see that in the Gospels. The early church understood this, but only 2,000 years later, here we are. And it seems like the missional focus has sort of left the building, so to speak. I love Pastor Jake, uh, the former senior pastor of our church. Uh, I succeeded him in 1996. And those of you that didn't know Jake, he was, a, he was a passionate evangelist. And one of the things that Jake often said, and it resonates in my heart, and it's great for this message right here, is that Jake used to say, the Great Commission, remember the Great Commission? Go into all the world, make disciples of every creature, right? That's the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Preach the gospel everywhere you go. And, what, and, and Jake would say, one of the reasons why the Great Commission was given was to save the world, but also to save the church and to save the believer. And what he meant by that is that the church that doesn't see the world as a mission field, it gets ingrown. 
And everything becomes about us. And it's all about, you know, carpet color and paint color and, you know, stuff like that. And bathrooms and that kind of thing. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> bathrooms are important. Amen? Amen. Okay. But the point is, and those are just tools. All of this up here is tools. But this is not our focus. I mean, there's stuff that costs money and it takes energy and it's a lot of work and we got to do it. But who cares, really, because really out there is our focus. And when people from out there come in here, we want them to have an amazing time. We want them to experience a good time. We want them to, to be, feel loved and accepted and that we prepared for them, that we're not sloppy or indifferent to their needs. But our focus is out there. Our focus is people. People need Christ. And so if you're a gospel witness, it's not only to save people out there, it's to save your heart from becoming a narcissist Christian. Where all you care about is you and your little thing and your little program and the church needs to be what you want it to be and all that stuff. And I, I've been around long enough to know, and I hope I got some chips here to push into the table to say that sometimes in churches like ours, there's just some people that have an agenda. They come in, they say, well, I think the church ought to be this. And they want the church to kind of conform to what they want or their needs. And thankfully, I thank the Lord of heaven that God has given us a body, a community of people here at Three Crosses that really, for the most part, do not feel and think that way. And they don't exist in that cult, this culture very long because they find out in this culture that actually we're not that concerned about meeting our personal needs, if we keep our eyes on the gospel, if we keep getting the gospel out, and if we keep following the Jesus that we meet in Scripture, our needs are going to be met. He promises to meet our needs. And all we need to do is... Thank you. Thank you. Both of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all we can do and should do is focus on what he called us to do. Because his missional focus is to go out, to get the gospel out. Okay, so that's, that's what I see in the first thing. It's this, he's on a seek and save mission. The second part of his missional focus is to serve. He came to serve, didn't he? And you see this in Jesus' life. It's so beautiful. You know, and you see this in the gospel record that there's this dissonance between how the disciples viewed the mission of Jesus. And it struck me that so often in the gospels, we read this apparent lack of understanding that the gospel of, in the gospels when it comes to being aligned with Jesus' mission. And one startling example is where James and John actually come to Jesus in Mark 10, and, and they say to him, Jesus, we would like you to do for us something special, basically. He's like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and, and they say, can you, I can't even picture this. We would like to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom. You know, like Jesus, got a favor. We want to rule and reign with you. We want to be right there. And Jesus says, oh, really? Okay, well, do you think you can drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh, yeah, we can. Wow. And they're just full of this. They're full of themselves. And Jesus goes on to say, in fact, you should probably turn there because I think it's better when you read it in your own Bibles. In Mark chapter 10, Matthew, Mark 10. He says, beginning in verse 42. And by the way, look at this, 41. The 10 heard about this. They became indignant with James and John. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. Maybe they felt like they could have asked the question or they were more deserving. Who knows? Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, 
You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must, um, among you must become your servant. Now, this, was, this was in everything about Jesus' life. It was about serving. It's about serving. He says, in my kingdom, there's nothing about rank or position. Greatness is found in humble service. For the Son of Man, verse 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now Matthew's account draws this up slightly differently, but with the same result. Greatness in the kingdom comes through humility, no big show, no race for titles, no position or rank. The way up is down, it's a kingdom upside down. And Jesus lived this way, didn't he? He walked his talk. There's no more beautiful example of this when we see him in John, 10, uh, John 13 where he wraps a towel around him and he takes on the role of the house slave. And you know in that setting in John 13, the disciples are waiting for Jesus to have their final Passover meal and they all show up and they get everything ready but none of them think about the fact that we don't have a, we're not in a regular house here, we're using a room and there's no house slave who would customarily wash their feet and make them suitable for a, a, a meeting and a gathering as they were having. And I love how John tells us this when he says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. And you call me teacher and Lord, for rightly so, that's what I am. Verse 14 of John 13, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should follow as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I love it, so powerful. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, no doubt, would have had this image in his mind when he penned those beautiful words in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in likeness of human, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you know, as I walked around our campus yesterday, I was so blessed to see so many that were like Jesus. Just giving, just time. You know, every... Every person I walked up to at the station they were in, they said something like, are you liking the chaos here today, Pastor Larry? And there was. It was like chaos. There were so many people, and there were not really enough workers. Could have used a few more workers in some of the stations yesterday, but every single one of them had joy in their hearts, and they said this is where, there was nowhere else they'd rather be. And that's a beautiful thing. Are we focused on the mission of Christ, seeking and saving the lost, serving rather than being served. And then lastly, when I see the Gospels and read through the Gospels, I see this third component of his mission, and that, of course, this is the overwhelming strong component, and that is that he came to be our sacrifice to pay for our sins. Tim stopped me this morning coming in to the service, and he's one of our ushers, and he said, I'm glad you've put us into the Gospels these last few weeks. He goes, I, I have to say that every time I read about the crucifixion of Christ, 
I'm just struck. It touches me so deeply. It's hard to even fathom the, the love of Christ for me in that moment. Each of the gospel writers makes sure that their readers understand that it was Jesus' plan to give himself as a ransom, as a sacrifice. And while the disciples were often clueless to this reality, Jesus constantly points them to his suffering and death. And all through the gospels, from the very start, he alludes to his suffering and his death. It was the plan. It was plan A. It was not plan B. It was not some unfortunate reality that spilled over Jesus as his ministry took on more and more adversity from the religious leaders. It was what Jesus intended to do from the very start. It was the plan of the Father. In fact, Luke records in Acts chapter 2, the words of Peter on that great sermon. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, the man accredited to you by God, by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It was God's plan. It was always God's plan. It was mission critical, never anything any less. The early church proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified for a good reason. It set the backdrop for humanity's biggest need and its utter impossibility of fixing on its own. And that is our sin. The cross tells us we are sinners. We make a big deal about the cross here at three crosses. We always have a cross. It's a cross in front of us. The cross is the reminder to us of God's great love for us. Sometimes we have people ask questions. It's a very common question. Why three crosses? And you've heard, and I've said it many times, but there's people here that don't know. Why three crosses? Is it Father, Son, Holy Spirit? No. Is it because Jesus was crucified with two criminals on his right and left? No. It's a very practical, actually pragmatic reason. And that is when the crosses were designed, someone suggested that there would be a configuration of crosses so that anyone coming from any direction would see a cross in front of them. And you go out on the freeway, and it is true, wherever you come from or wherever you're going, there's always a cross in front of you. You know, we have a purpose statement here at our church. It's called Life Transformation through following Christ. And a while back, we started working on a vision statement. We've actually never ratified it, never codified it, but we wrestled with this for days and actually weeks as a leadership. What is our vision statement? What did God put us here? What is the DNA of our church? What is the thing that, that we feel like God's called us to do? And it hit us one day in our discussions that what God has called us to do, and we've, we've again, not codified it, but we put it in a simple language, something like this, that we seek, our ministries seek, to place a cross at every intersection of life. And that's even evidenced by our very own property. There's a cross. We want people to see the cross. You know why? Because it's the cross where you see the unfathomable love of God for sinners. You know, I, I hear people sometimes talk about Jesus in terms like, well, yeah, I, I'm a follower of Jesus too. I can't get away from his great inspirational teaching or his amazing ethic in life or how his wisdom and sort of like from a, I would call a liberal theological bent would sort of glory in the magnificence of Christ's teaching or his persona or even or 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 his works or his miracles. And all of those things are beautiful, but there's nothing as beautiful as his death. 
Because it's his death that shows us who we are, that we are sinners, that there's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It is the cross that reminds us that we are desperate to find life and hope in any other means than what Jesus Christ has done. And that's why when you think about what Jesus said in Luke 9, he puts it back to our own hearts and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Constantly reminded of the cross. And so I ask you the question as we wrap up this morning. Have you come to the one who Gave his life for you. Do you see the one who hung on that cross, bled and died a a brutal death, a cruel death? Nothing easy about what Jesus did for us, but he did it because of his love. How great is his love? And it wasn't just that that he died, but that he rose again from the grave. That his power could not keep him in the grave But he rose again victoriously, powerfully on that third day to show us that we too now may have the power to live a new life and to be fully brought to the place where Christ died to redeem us, to become, that we would become his children, sons and daughters of the King. This morning, if you've never opened your heart to Christ, I pray, I'm asking the Lord to bring someone today into his kingdom, someone today in this place. Is that you? Is it you? You might be sitting in the back row of this church this morning. You might be sitting right down front. And the Lord is tapping at the door of your heart and he's saying, come, give me your life. I have come to seek for that which is lost. I have come to serve and to give my life as a sacrifice. And as we read through the gospel record, and as many of us are going to finish the entire gospel reading this week, And praise God, what a glorious experience, what a once again transformational experience to just follow Jesus through the Gospels and to see that this is his love for us, his amazing love, his radical discipleship, his miraculous power, and his missional focus. And he did it so that you and I could spend eternity with him. And there's a lot of folks in our lives, if we took the numbers of people that all of us are connected to and know, it would go into the tens of thousands of people that have not yet come to know this Jesus that we come to worship this morning. And maybe over the next several weeks, it would be our ardent prayer to say, God, give me boldness, give me courage to invite people, to place a little invitation, to welcome somebody into the church service, into a special outreach, to open the door of my heart, to say, would you come, would you be my guest? Or even more importantly, that over coffee or in someone's living room, we might utter the words of how Jesus changed us and transformed our lives and simply share the gospel with somebody that we care for. And I think that would be something beautiful that would come out of a little series like this.